20 years ago, children's mental health services were, I would say, the word awful. There was a few things that were given and provided to children and families, and it was ineffective. I worked in that, and I knew and felt that I could do better. You're listening to Stories from the Top, an inside guide to better business development. We are here with Mel Bwint, the CEO of CFF. Um, How do you like to describe CFF for people who haven't heard of it? CFF, Child and Family Focus, um, is a community-based mental health. We specifically uh, work with children. So we provide uh, community-based mental health services, and we have a variety of services that we provide. Um, Yeah, so in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is to help families, um, whether it be recover or heal, and also keep them in their own home, in the community. Very cool. So what did you originally go to school for? So I went to school. Well, basically, my story is I didn't want to go to school. But thank God my father made me go. No questions. You've got to go to college. So I went to um, a small liberal arts Christian school called Eastern College at the time. Now it's Eastern University. And I picked psychology only because I didn't want to be an engineer, didn't want to be, you know, in the medical field. And uh, fate has it that uh, this became the driving force of what I was about to do in my future. So psychology was my background and started in the field just like anybody else. Uh, back then, uh, you just go to work. Right after college, you just go to work. And and I did that and just... Uh, learned a whole lot of things, but what it did was it gave me a direction on on what I wanted to do, which was to help, and uh, got me into uh, meeting some incredible, incredible people that I still remember. They made an impression in my life uh, in terms of recovery and resiliency, and uh, some of that came about when I was working directly with uh, um, individuals recovering from drug and alcohol addiction and uh, just learned a whole lot. But within that time, I also learned that I really enjoyed and liked and wanted to improve processes and programs. So that got me to thinking about, you know, uh, where I wanted to go. And so here's a guy who hated school. Honestly, I did not want to go to school. I hated (laughs) it. I did not enjoy undergrad, Um, but I was focused then. Uh, and wanting to go on to get my master's, so which is what I did. And from that point on, it's been just onward, and the excitement in terms of, you know, improving programs where I'm at um, really just uh, solidified to me. Did you have, when you were getting your psychology degree, anything in your childhood that kind of led you in that direction to start with, or was it just the most attractive option? Well, it was the easiest option. But looking back, uh, my mother was, was probably my main influencer. Um, she is a psychiatrist, retired now. But we would talk at different times about people in general. And, and I think that spawned you know, a little spark in me, an interest. And um, I don't recall all the conversations anymore, but, you know, but they were impressionable enough that I think that was the direction that I went into. 
And certainly when I got into the field of social services, um, she was instrumental in, in helping me to understand, you know, the, the really the human aspect of it. Um, and uh, it, it, it was good. It was, it was, you know, and I think that was one of the ways that I look back and kept me going. Um, and she very humbly said certain things, but they resonate. What was the first job out of school you had? The first one was actually um, um, very innovative because it was the first adult community residential rehabilitation services, and it also served those who had drug addiction. Um, and it was in West Philadelphia, and I remember I had the third shift, 3 to 11 shift, and uh, talk about, you know, um, impactful things. I remember this gentleman who was my client. His name was David. He was about 44. And looking at his history, he had his master's in mathematics. But he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And, um, and he became, you know, part of uh, um, this, this uh, uh, residential facility. And we were sitting down one day, and I, I remember this vividly, and David looked at me and I said, David, what are you looking at? You know, because I'm looking at you. I want to be just like you. And there was a moment of sadness that came about because here was an accomplished person at 44, you know, graduate. I think he was from University of Penn with mathematics. And he's looking at this young person just fresh out of school. And the sadness was the, the, the disease really took his life away. And, you know, I don't recall any other conversations after that, but that made an impression of what, you know, uh, an individual um, living with mental health disorder, um, you know, was, was, was kind of feeling at that point. And, and I'm 22 years old, you know, <laughs> looking at me as the example. So that blew my mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when did you decide that instead of just working for other people's organizations or practices that you wanted to start something of your own with more of a focus? So my history and my development took me down seven to eight agencies. So I worked and I grew. Um, part of it was my desire to improve programs and to innovate that, um, you know, I just kind of uh, just took hold of and, and uh, just was driven to improve services. So that being said, um, there was something that uh, in terms of goal setting that I did long ago, which was I would like to be, uh, have my own place at a certain age. And I set that goal. So for those who are listening, setting goals do work. Um, so, um, real quick, when you were see, what were you seeing that you thought needed to be improved in practices that it became your passion to improve? So, my agency, Child and Family Focus, is uh, twenty plus years now, uh, just barely over twenty. But at that time, twenty years ago, children's mental health services were, I would say, the word awful, because there was very little options. There was a few things that were given and provided to children and families, and 
And basically, uh, it was ineffective. So I worked on that. And I knew and felt that I could do better. And the better is not for me to start something and, ooh, look at me kind of thing. But it was more of the children and families deserve better than what it is. So I started thinking. I started listening. Um, Child and Family Focus started with listening to families telling me what they need. And, you know, back when, and probably even past, there was a notion that families don't know, professionals know. So back then, there was very little choice. And I'll be honest, there was very little innovation because this was what it was and people accepted it. And for me, that's not what I accepted. I cannot live with, uh, with this statement that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That is totally against what I believe. So I'm curious, what kind of feedback were you hearing from the parents? And like, what problems were you seeing that were not being met in the current uh, state of the industry? So everything that back then was fairly siloed. So meaning you have this service and this is it. You don't cross into another service. There's no looking at um, individualization of services. So part of what happened to me was I was in an opportunity to look at and blend different services by using the same staff. So basically the families were telling me, hey, you know, you know us. Why don't you work with us when we're discharged? And that really became the, the um, resounding opinion. And I was hearing that all the time. And I started thinking, what can I do differently? And one of the other things that I'm struck by is that we're all told um, once you're in, in with the service, you have to just, you know, break away from the family. You know, honestly, I never really believed in that because one of the things that work in terms of anything is the relational piece that's connect, the connection that's there. Mm-hmm. So I started questioning how can we maintain some level of relation but some level of continuity of care. So I started playing. But playing was really utilizing what exists and pairing um, the staff who was involved with the family to follow them into the home. And by gosh, that worked. And that really set the stage for me to think differently about um, uh, community-based services. So when did you officially start CFF? So the, once the goal was set, it was um, 21 years ago with the thought of what to do and what type of service. Um, and by that point, I knew children's services. And um, I knew the, I didn't know the ins and outs, but I knew enough that I knew where the barriers were. Um, and I was involved with all the licensing. So all these nitty gritty things that I needed to know, I knew. That being said, trying to start something on my own with no funding was was a little scary. Well, yeah, what were to be some, honest, a lot scary. <laughs> what were some of the steps you had to take to get up and running legally and then? Yeah, so what we do at CFF, most of our programs are licensed. So, but before the license, you have to get endorsed. So somebody has to believe in your vision and your idea that this is going to work. So what that means is that the county uh, would have to say, 
hey, we believe in you. We're going to support you. We're going to write you that letter that is needed to go for your licensure. So that's the really the essence of, of how any licensed organization gets started. Um, from that point on, you're on your own. So back then, it was um, really a strong discussion with my wife, and we put our home up. Home equity line was what started CFF. You use that for the initial funding? It, yeah, we did. And, uh, you know, looking back, I wouldn't have changed anything for the world. I wonder whether provided funding would have changed who we are today because we learned a whole lot about um, doing the best we can with what's given to us. Wow, so you really invested yourself into this business. How much did you have to put down to get started? Um, monetarily, uh, here's the here's the interesting thing, and I, and I think that this is because I knew well enough the financial piece of it, the billing piece of it, and the mechanics of the service itself. So initially, we were looking at upwards of fifty, sixty thousand, but it never took shape because, thank goodness, we were solvent in three months. Hmm. But what that took was, uh, billing services that we performed that day, that night, trying to, you know, generate income. Um, what I also did, and this is something that was planned, that I would not draw a salary for the first year. Everything was pushed back into building CFF. So affording, you know, the, 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 the office space and, and the staff, everything went back. And I just worked three other jobs <laughs> to do that. Hmm. Um, but the focus was to build CFF, but I knew that I needed staff. I couldn't do it alone. So is that three other jobs at the same time as you same were building? Time. Yeah, CFF? evenings, what, weekends. What kind of jobs? So I would do on, on weekends counseling, mm -hmm. uh, individual and family therapy. Um, one point I was doing um, um, a courier service where uh, at five o'clock I would put on a different shirt and I would somebody would you know chirp the Nextel phones and, hey, go here, pick this up. And <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that was the most profitable. Uh, my wife would say, ah, oh, that was stupid. <laughs> but, um, but you know, the, the biggest thing, and, and, and I hope that uh, the listeners will, will understand this, it's not hard to start a business. It's hard to do the business. But before you do that, um, you have to wipe away or figure out how to deal with the fear of failure. And my story goes where um, before it started, you know, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to support a family of three. Um, I'm the breadwinner. I'm leaving uh, a good job with, with benefits and starting something with nothing. Scary times. But what got me over was this realization. And this hit me well and, and timely too. And this was that, hey, I can get a job anywhere to support my family, to support what I'm, you know, whatever I need to do. I can get a job at, Mc, you know, not McDonald's. It's, I don't want to say McDonald's is a bad job. It's a great job. <laughs> um, but I can get a job anywhere. So then that really helped me to understand the fear factor in this. That's a show, right? Fear factor? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it got me really focused. And, and it was, then it was like, hey, do the job. You know, you know what you need to do, start doing it. And my development, uh, so it took a year and a half 
Um, and when I tell you that there was barriers upon barriers, but my belief is if there's a barrier, I'm going to hurdle that. And that's what happened. So it was the drive to make this happen and not let anything interfere. And I'm very thankful, you know, that uh, um, those things happen. And, uh, and that's part of why I believe that this notion of um, if somebody else can do it, why can't I? Um, and I'm pretty much a fix-it guy. You know, I'll figure out something, and if I can't do it, then I'll reach out. So once you had funding and things were greenlit for you to go ahead mm -hmm. and start CFF officially, what was your first step? Finding staff, a building? What, what was the most? So in order to obtain the license, you had to establish that you have a place. So I had to find um, an office space. You know, again, no funding. You know, this was out of pocket. So I found a one-room uh, office in Phoenixville. And that set the stage for uh, what to come. So, so the way in my business works is somebody from a licensing inspection would have to come and say, oh, hey, Mel, you're legitimate. Child and family folks has an office. There's a uh, telephone, you know. Um, because I think a lot of times people will say, oh, I'm starting a business and I'm providing services, but they don't have a location. So location was a key. Um, and then from that point on, it was really trying to attract um, people who, you know, uh, would fit the agency, um, our mission, who we are. So what we've done over the years, and we still continue, is this. When the first staff came, I said, okay, you're here now. Bring somebody good. So we've grown from uh, word of mouth, basically. And that's, that's who we are. For, for hiring? For hiring, right. That's been the best way to grow. Yeah, right now, it's a different story, but, you know. So, so were you using that initial funding you got yourself to pay for them until you could get billing, like, to catch up with salaries and stuff? Or how did that work with paying Pretty much, them? yeah. That's, that's how it worked. But, again, you know, to be solvent in three months, meaning we had a cash flow uh, because the billing cycle was just immediate. And... Um, and that was one of the things that, you know, over time I had to learn what that meant. So the aspect of billing. So basically when I started, I had to know every aspect. I was also part of the treatment team um, uh, because the service that we provided required a master's level and a bachelor's level. So it's a team approach and we would go out and work with families providing therapy and whatever crisis intervention, all those things. It was a 24-7 uh, type of service. So uh, we did that. So I wore many hats and gladly, you know, I, after hours, I clean the office and, <laughs> um, you know, whatever, whatever it took really was the model or, or the, the, the philosophy and things. So in order to get that billing cycle running, where did you guys go to get your first series of clients? So the way our service works is at the time the referrals come came from outside. So either directly from families or it came from the insurance company. So they would call and say, hey, Mel, we have a referral for you. Here's the location. Here's the specifics. Let us send you the initial information and let us know whether they're appropriate for service. So we would have to go out and meet with the family, do the assessment, and then report back and then they would authorize. So the authorization is typically for that service was eight months. It may seem like a long time, but um, 
it, it's relatively short when you think about all the, the issues. We weren't just dealing with the child, we were dealing with the entire family. So that was the level of uh, high intensive service that we provided. So um, I'm curious, how did you make the connection with these insurance companies? Like how did they know to recommend you? So once you are licensed, you also have to apply to get into the network. So just like you know, right now we have insurance for medical, right? Mm -hmm. When you go in the portal, you see all the um, um, network providers. Somehow you have to apply and be accepted into the network. Similarly, that's how the um, mental health uh, insurance works too. So, we so have once you're in the network, they they just see you on a list of providers right. that they can recommend. Okay, yeah. and th and that's the entire process to accept insurance as part of someone's service? for Medicaid services. Yeah, and certainly you have to be licensed. You have to qualify. I mean, there's a lot of things that. Um, there's there's a lot of demand in terms of you know the requirements and expectations, and you guys didn't have any issues getting through any of those licenses or anything. Uh, sure, we you know we were startup, we had issues, but again, I welcomed inspections because part of what inspection, state inspections and licensing inspection, they're trying to help you. So we looked at it in a different way, and I worked for other agencies where oh my goodness, licensing is coming, you know, let's hide everything. No, we're open book. Help us to grow, help us to be better at what we do, and that's been our our um, philosophy to this day. And I can tell you that um, I'm so proud of the staff here because we achieve high standards. Um, in fact, I, I truly believe that we have changed over the years um, the playing field for children's mental health services. We've elevated others to do better. And I'm proud of that. So uh, during these inspections, what kind of things are they looking for? Like how does that inspection work? So the inspections are... Uh, so every client that we have, we have to keep a clinical file. So that's all their demographics, all their information, all the clinical contacts. So that's one piece. So we call that paper review. Um, then there's the physical site. So they'll go through and, and do um, um, safety check of the building. Um, and then they may also go and interview families hmm. on how we provide services. So there are a lot of uh, uh, indicators that they will look at. Um, some they publish, um, but you know it's it's up to us to meet those standards and continue that. So what we charge and try to do is to go beyond those standards. Um, to us, meeting standards is the minimum. When it gets really cool is when you have family saying, you know, thank you for doing this, and this is. Nobody's ever, you know, looked at us in a different way, like, you know, and so it's about service. It's about doing the best we can clinically and just as people, you know, interacting with, with, uh, I have always said to the staff, we're we are privileged to be able to go into a family's home where they open their doors and their, their, you know, all their stuff is we get to see that. We get to be a part of the family. What a privilege that is. You mentioned um, goal setting early on. In that first year of starting the business, did you have long-term goals of where you wanted CFF to get into? I did not. And I think there was a reason why I didn't. And part of it is that 
I didn't want to get way ahead of myself. You know, we had to focus on day-to-day. But one thing that I did know was diversification. There was always a mindset of innovation and diversification that was from the beginning. So there were other services that I thought about, but I was not going to start things simultaneously um, because I needed to have a foundation. So it was one particular service. Um, we did it really well, um, and, and that's how we grew. So we started, and part of what happened in my field is that, you know, uh, outsiders start to recognize Families specifically started recognizing, hey, here's a good agency. They listen to us. They work with us. They're with us. So that started to grow. So that really helped in terms of the referrals. And then the other thing is that um, government agencies, insurance companies start to see what we're able to do, and they start to, to present things. And that's the cool thing. You know, so we've grown, you know, by word of mouth and and at some level, uh, um, those who you know, wanted to do something differently or innovative, they'll partner and they'll call me and they'll say, hey, Mel, we want you to talk about, uh, think about this particular service that we're thinking about. Would you partner with us? And what do I say? Absolutely. And uh, so there are things that, uh, services that we provide today, and that's exactly how that came about. So government agencies were suggesting, what kind of agencies would be suggesting services to you guys? So our main... Um, body that that uh, we work with are the every county has a mental health department so we work with the chester county delaware county montgomery county all the counties that we work with we work specifically with their mental health department because we are a children's mental health agency we are also licensed to provide foster care and uh, recently we were approved to do adoption so that's very exciting so um, and it is all children's mental health services, and uh, and also foster care. So how many employees did you guys have, and how long did you stay at that Phoenixville office? Like, let's talk about that first year. How many people were there? And So, you know, when you go back to thinking about, you know, long-term, I did not predict how long we were going to be, nor did I envision what was going to happen. We lasted a year. By the end of the year, I had 10 staff in a one-room office in Phoenixville, <laughs> And, but it was an incredible uh, energy, uh, energy-filled office. We were having a blast. Um, but we outgrew that in a year's time. So we went to another office, probably three times the size. Another thing happened. We lasted a year there. We outgrew that. So that's been our history of outgrowing. And then one of the things that, that happened um, within that time was Bucks County Mental Health reached out to me and asked us to come in and provide uh, the family-based mental health services. So, and we started branching out in that fashion. So it's really counties reaching us out to say, hey, we want you to partner with us to do this, is how we've grown. So we're currently in five different counties, um, and in some particular uh, services, we're the biggest provider of that service. Um, it's called high-fidelity wraparound services. So we are... The, and and I'm, I have to say this, I'm so proud of this particular service. Um, and it's not a clinical-based services, but there was a time when um, federal government came to look at this particular service, and the state of Pennsylvania identified CFF as the provider of choice 
and they came and did an interview, a three-day interview. Also had families interviewed separately. And at the end of the um, um, assessment, this is what they said. And, and I'm, I'm so proud still of this. They said, based upon what we've seen of high fidelity wrap services in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania is in good hands. Could not have asked for any better response from the feds. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. So as you were growing, how did you maintain the quality of staff like that you wanted to have from the beginning? It started with people referring each other that you knew and trusted. How did the scaling affect your hiring and training? One of, one of the things that I focused on was culture. Having worked at eight different agencies, I learned different cultures, and I made a promise to any staff that I will not create, I wouldn't planfully try to create something of an organization that, you know, why would I create something that I didn't like to be what CFF would become? So that's always in the back of my mind of, you know, I knew that I can't do it alone. And I wanted to make sure that staff had the environment, uh, the culture. So the culture became a big thing. But before then, it was the mission. The mission of who we are is what drives what we do. And I say this day in and day out. So part of my job was to share the vision, share what we're trying to do, why we do what we do, and continue that process. So we've been building and improving on, on our, our culture. Um, so along the way, there are moments that I remember where things like being able to afford health care for staff. That was one of the proud moments. The other was 401k, having that, that you know, platform or a vehicle for future. Um, so along the way, um, the other thing that I looked at was what I call um, no guilt leave days. So we just created full 17 days for everybody. And hey, you need to take a mental health day? You take it. So, you know, and I'm proud of the fact that uh, we're continuing to build a foundation of, uh, you know, uh, it's just a great environment. The work-life balance was really critical. One of the things that I said to my wife and my kids was, um, I didn't want to start an agency and be one of those dads who worked 80 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And I think I achieved that because I didn't want to miss out on what's really important because it's not fair to the family because this is something that I wanted to do. Why should they, you know, um, you know, I want to be a part of things. So um, as much as I could, I was there, you know, and sure, can I do better? Absolutely, looking back. But, but I, I feel good that right now we have such a work-life balance here that um, I think our, my staff feel very good about that. And how have you handled training with staff as they've come in and out of the business throughout the years? So some of the services have built-in requirements for training, and it's an external training, so we, we would maximize that. But I'll tell you, a lot of the learning, the best learning happened internally, and that's through a uh, team approach. Um, and sure, we, we didn't know, you know a lot of uh, um, 
we, we had lots of training needs. So we would try to find, try to individualize to what the needs are to the staff and create a some sort of a curriculum for them. Um, the good thing about in my field is that there are lots of trainings that are available. Now they're available online, so it makes it even easier. But there's not a substitute for face-to-face supervision or training. And we've been building our own internal training um, program here. So, um, yeah, so there's many ways to, you know, try to get uh, staff well-trained. So that, that um, <clears throat> excuse me, that training process, you said it's mostly face-to-face. So does that mean you're sitting down with them as they're working with real clients, or do you have, like, simulated training sessions, or, or what? Or do you use anything other than um, face-to-face, like any video content, any, uh, like, handbooks or anything like that? Sure. There are lots of modules. I mean, you know, so I, I can think of various different ways, um, and we want to call it didactic training is the way, you know, so it's, it's a blend of instructional versus hands-on. Um, we have opportunities where the supervisors, and we talk about a field, you know, training, so to speak, is when a supervisor goes with the staff and they're in the session, you know, afterwards they can have feedback right away. Um, I wouldn't say that we are a you know, um, like a higher education institutional kind of training program. We're not that. So we're more field-oriented. And um, the supervision really doubles as partial training because that's where the dialogue happens where, hey, you know, this is what was presented in the session and wasn't quite sure what to do about this. So then they would, you know, discuss plans and so on. And then if there's a learning need where it goes beyond what, the capability of the supervisor or director, then we start to look differently. Uh, I'll give you an example of one that that we all had to learn was um, when we serve uh, uh, individuals from different cultures, cultural differences, you know, cultural norms are important. Certain cultures where, um, you know, the, the father will not talk to females. So that presented as a dilemma that we had to understand. And that's what we did. So we learned that culture to say, okay, we cannot proceed because the impact would be that um, it's an immediate barrier. The father, because culturally different, is not going to be participating or be a part of it. So we had to work around those things. So those are those are ever changing and ever learning. So, you know, as you know, our our society is becoming more blended. So we've got so many cultures uh, coming in that uh, we have to stay on top of that. So how, what was the core service you started with at the very beginning? And that was interesting question because that was one of the things that I had to figure out. Um, one, it was on a financial end, meaning that I could not uh, start with some sort of a facility-based. So I did know that. So community-based really became the thing um, that I focused on. Um, and it was a service that was not known to many. So... To give you an, to the point to this, um, in Chester County, where Child and Family Focus was endorsed, we became the third agency to provide this service. In Bucks County, we were the second. So that's how new it was. Um, the family-based mental health services is the highest level intensive community-based service that exists. 
So what I used to say to staff who were involved with that, um, I would say, hey, listen, I want to tell you something. I don't want you to get demoralized, but if we fail, then the child leaves the home. It is that intensive, and we have eight months. Um, and oftentimes, we couldn't finish the job, basically. And I hate to capture it as a job because it's not really that. But we couldn't complete the service because our job is to stabilize the family and move them on to another level of service where they'll continue on. And that's a hard concept concept for you know, um, all of us because we want to stay with the family and continue. So that was a big learning curve, but, but um, I had to find this vehicle that met the licensure for what we were trying to do, but also make it so that um, I wouldn't incur the cost of a residential. So that was, that was one that I did figure out prior to in the business side of it. So just a quick follow-up question. Um, that sounds like a lot of pressure as a business owner to have that high stakes. I mean, you're talking about a child leaving their family if you don't complete the job that you're setting out to do. Mm -hmm. um, does that weight follow you home at night? Is it hard to sleep knowing some of the situations that your patients are dealing with? As I said earlier, it was the 24-7. So we're responsible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the answer is yes. But I've had to learn to figure out how to, to do this. And it's not that I don't care, but I had to put it aside. So the only word that comes to mind is compartmentalizing. I've had to do that. I've had to focus on different things, shift. And along the way, I had to help staff shift as well because the intensity of what we're trying to do is um, incredibly draining. Um, you know, think of bringing on another family's, you know, issues and because therapy works when there's investments on both sides. So, you know, we either try to figure out how to deal with the, the sheer amount of um, things that are brought into our lives as we provide therapy, you know. Um, I can't imagine the, 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 the Texas situation, mm. you know, um, I was, I was listening to the news and basically a, a pediatric surgeon was helping some of the kids who were brought in and she just broke down on, on the interview and basically how it just, you know, uh, after seeing so many kids, this still was devastating. So imagine um, my, my staff bringing on home all those issues, you know. So we've had to figure out how to debrief. So what we figured out was after every session, we would talk about it and plan, you know. Um, and when there's a crisis, we're all together, doing it together. So um, and that was one of the things that uh, my kids hated was the beeper would go off. <laughs> Time of beepers, right? <laughs> Yeah, the beeper would go off, and we're like, oh, no. So sure enough, there's usually a crisis. We have to get out to the house, try to, you know, stabilize the situation. And again, if we fail, if it's unmanageable, then the child gets um, evaluated at a hospital or police are called, and that's a scene that nobody wants. So, yeah, so trying to figure out, you know. Um, I say this to my staff even to this day. Take care of yourself. 
this is hard. This is really hard. And I'll say this. I don't need you for the short term. I need you for the long term. And then we would continue to talk about what that means. So it sounds like you have some processes in place to evaluate the mental health of your own staff as well after they're working on this job, which is it's uh, emotionally taxing in its own right. So you have some processes to evaluate their mental health. I guess like you were saying with those those days off and the talking about um, what's going on after each interview. Is there any other process that you have for that mental health of your staff? Yeah, I think part of what we have is an openness to be able to discuss those things, you know. Um, and one of the things that my directors and supervisors do really well is stay in touch and be attuned to what's happening with their staff. And um, one of the ways that we, we just kind of get together is when there's something big happen, we all, as I said, get involved and, and try to help each other. Um, from an organizational level, there is the you know, process outside where um, they have access to counseling. And we also have our own trauma program inside. It's called the CARES team. So um, recently, you know, in order to kind of help process um, the tragedy in Texas, there was a mass email that went out basically describing, um, you know, acknowledging what had happened and, and what staff can do. Um, we would present various speakers internally to talk about, um, um, you know, current situations that's impacting us from the outside world. Um, Certainly the, uh, you know, year and a half ago with uh, George Floyd's situation, all those things. Um, so we try to just kind of stay together and, and address all these issues that may come about. But for a clinical, um, we're just, you know, we're just open. My door's always open. Somebody can always come in. Um, so that's how we have. We have an open door policy where any of the staff can reach out. Um, to move things back to your guys' services, I know you started with kind of a community focus. Obviously, now you guys have tons of different services. Are most of them expansions from suggestions from government bodies, like you were saying earlier, or are those things you kind of saw a need for and started filling that need? It's actually both. So we benefited from, um, you know, partners coming to us and saying, we want to do one way to do this. Um, with us, but at the same time, we're also looking for growth. So, and my model of growth is really not to overextend us, and that's that's really important for us because part of what I've learned over the years is that I work for agencies where growth was for the sake of growth only, and what it only does is it um, borders down the um, the quality, you know, and, and I made a point uh, way back before I started that I will not do that. That's a mistake that often happens. Um, so we have grown based upon need and certain things that will happen where um, unbeknownst to me what was on the other side, it would be a conversation about a topic that they would ask me a question. And then at the end of the conversation, they would say, hey, would you like to submit a proposal? <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. So those are some of the things that have happened. But um, we have been um, 
over the last 10 years probably been more aggressive in looking at, okay, you know, this particular uh, model of need meets our mission and we want to expand it to that. So, yeah, so it's it's been both. Okay, cool. So um, are you guys fully funded through billing at this point or how do you guys raise funds and continue to stay funded to properly run everything? Most of the services are Medicaid or what we call fee-for-service. So the way it works is we do the work, we bill for the work, and we get paid for the work. Um, and then there are some programs that the county specifically fund us annually. That being said, we still have to meet their benchmarks and, and indicators you know, that we're doing what we're supposed to. Um, so it's a blend that we've looked at um, from a business side of it, keeping that uh, balance. We don't want to be too top heavy on one end of service because if that seems to, you know, um, dwindle a little bit for whatever reason, then you got problems. So we did identify that. So we've been balancing out 60-40%, so 60% Medicaid and 40% county funded. And we kind of look at that, you know, um, every year to see where we balance out. Yeah, I guess, too, you guys want to keep it your services needs-based, not well, we get the most money from this, get more people who need that service or whatever, so. Exactly. And I've often been asked about from uh, even my staff who wants to start their own business and we'll sit down and chat and 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 also to my children in conversations we'll have and I'll say, hey, don't chase the money. You know, chase your dream, but don't chase the money. And if you perfect and, and work on your dream and, and it comes to fruition, then eventually, you know, I mean, not eventually, but money will come. Um, I think about the young today where, you know, the, the quick, quick money, quick schemes, as I call them, you see them all the time and you get drawn in, I get drawn in. But the thing that I've learned over time is, you know, try not to chase the money. Um, so what is the, the drive that you're chasing, if not the money? To provide better quality services for children with mental health disorders, plain and simple. I saw many ways in my in my history of thirty plus years, well, almost forty years now, um, that you know uh, families were not provided good services. That's the honest truth. They, it was it was you know just whatever was available is what they got. It didn't meet their needs, but that's all you got. That's it. So I really felt that CFF could make, um, you know, provide not only better service, but innovative services that really meets the needs of the family. And um, this agency is a not-for-profit. It will go on forever if I have my wishes. So I have another question about staffing. So once things grew to the point where you needed people on an admin side, you know, beyond the counseling and those types of services, how did you go about finding people that were a good fit for the culture of the company when they're not really in the counseling field? You know what I mean? So that's an easy answer because in any business, you have to have the financial acumen and the ability. Um, and I was fortunate to have a friend that I worked with, who I worked with, and who still to this day. So we've been partnering together for 
uh, gosh, 35 years now. So, um, you know, there's a level of trust that I can't even reproduce in terms of his uh, skills. Um, so we work very well hand in hand where I'm able to focus on the program side of it um, and, and innovative side of it. And the financial pieces are handled by my CFO. So he has his own team that we've been building over the years. Um, and, you know, just like with size, you just need to have that infrastructure in order to, to function. So we recognize that, but we will always be mindful of um, not overextending, even in the internal um, structure. What that means is that I never wanted to be top-heavy administratively because what we do is really um, is, is for the staff for services. So everything is very lean here, um, and I'm proud of that. Yeah, you always hear those horror stories about nonprofits that like 99% of their stuff goes to admin and stuff. So it's good to hear that you guys are focused on not doing that. Yeah, we've always been ahead of the game. And in fact, um, you know, I'll say 10% was what our line is. That has not changed. And we were even questioned by counties saying, how can you do that for 10% admin line? But we've done it and we'll continue to do it as long as, you know, we're able to, and I don't foresee any reason why we can't. Yeah, for that's like the best bang for your buck you can get as far yeah. as supporting a nonprofit goes, yeah. too. That's really good. So um, how did you guys fare through COVID as that came in and kind of attacked the ability to go see people in person, which I know is really how you guys are able to connect with people? Sure. All of our services are face-to-face in the community, so when COVID hit, the whole world, you know, as you know, um, went virtual. We were locked down. Um, we had to deal with our own. So part of the steps that we took was ensuring the safety of staff. I remember sending out a memo um, basically saying to staff, oh, we'll be back together in two weeks. Well, <laughs> that didn't happen. You know, two years um, where we were all remote. So, and and... What I am so appreciative is the government also recognized the need for this service, so they adjusted, released um, certain regulations on how we can do the service. So telehealth became um, um, a way to do this. So they released more of how we can do telehealth, and that really helped maintain, um, you know, some level of connection to staff. They also provided um, ways for us to continue to function because at the time, you know, staff were dropping out. Uh, there was a lot of fear. I mean, that's all we thought about. You know, looking at the numbers of the infection rate and all that and then all those measures. So, um, but I can say that I am so proud of what our internal process, we really worked hard to make sure that our staff understood um, what our agency's protocol is in terms of in-office and out-of-office. We supplied all the PPEs, uh, and we continue to do that. And um, providing uh, um, technology in order for them to stay connected. Um, we did things that I thought everybody did in terms of how to stay connected with staff, meaning like we had events online that, that um, we were presenting, like Magic Show, you know, uh, those kinds of things to keep 
us connected. We would have various meetings just to stay um, well-connected and well-informed. So we did as much as we could. And our COVID infections were low, I think, comparatively. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but what happened to CFF was we learned a different way. And, and CFF, by and large, is a tremendously, I would say, gifted in terms of responding. We respond to situations incredibly well, faster than I've ever experienced in any other organization. And that's a testament to leadership. Um, so we responded in, in whatever we needed to do to make, you know, one, the livelihood continue on, continue to provide services. And it also changed how we looked at our own offices and how we function. So what, what that means is that we actually went hybrid. Community-based going hybrid is kind of like, wait, what? Um, but what that means is that our staff no longer have to come into the office as a base. They can go from home. You know, um, um, We're still trying to go community-based, but then there's now the telehealth that will allow us to do in situations where families are uncomfortable. We can still continue therapy that way. So it has changed how we... Um, how we function. So we've actually uh, retracted some of our office spaces because we don't need as much anymore. So that's one of the benefits. But we're also mindful of the downside is the connection. We are relational people. Things that I'll miss are the, the days of uh, all staff being here doing potlucks, you know, things like that. So now we're saying, okay, we're still going to do that, but it's just going to look a little bit differently. So... We're a very flexible, adaptable agency. That's another thing that I think, uh, because we are our own independent, we're able to do these things with relatively no red tape. Um, and I'm for one that basically does not believe in having policies that are so antiquated and outdated that we just keep it because we've had it. Mm -hmm. We're able to look at policies and procedures and adjust it. And you know what? If this doesn't work today. We're going to change it. And I love that about CFF. Mm -hmm. So was, did you guys see an uptick in a need for your services during that time? Um, I would say in certain services, yes. Uh, the youth, the youth, we're talking about 18 to 26 age that we work with. There was a tremendous need that came about. Um, but the majority... Uh, you know, this is the resiliency of families. As much as before COVID, there was a lot of crises, they held it together. And I, and I look at that and say, wow, this is about, you know, how people come together. And to me, that was so hopeful because in some situations with families that we deal with, it is chaotic. It is just, you know, um, generational. Um, but how about a pandemic to bring families together, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we didn't see a lot of uptick in need. Now, that being said, one thing that we were all concerned about is because the schools went locked down, um, we don't know where child abuse. Um, you know, a lot of times the majority of the reports happen in schools where the school personnel would be reporting child abuse. So we're worried about that. And certainly we're starting to see um, what's happened since then 
is we're starting to see more of the, the, the traumatic side of, you know, uh, on our children. So that's going to, so I think the uptick is going to be post-pandemic. So we've yet to see the effect. We've yet to see it. <clears throat> so do you guys have any, I know you've kind of been reactive to kind of meet needs more than proactive in expansions and stuff. Do you guys have any future goals at this point? Or are you still kind of, we'll go where we need to go? We will always be needs driven, but there's also a realization that our agency, in order to continue our efforts to um, serve as much as we can, we need to have a level of diversity, level of growth. So we are, we've started our three-year strategic initiative that is looking at um, you know, new opportunities so I say this in, in many ways to many staff uh, that uh, we're, we need to grow a certain percentage in order to keep what we have. That number used to be 10% growth. That's climbed now. Um, so you know, part of my job and my CFO's job is to look at what is happening to the environment. You know, um, and you know, out of anything, there are different opportunities. So. We're looking to expand what we do. So that's one of the things. Um, you won't find us branching out into all areas of whatever service. It's focused on children's mental health. And the good thing is there are clearly openness to innovation. So what we want to be is then the driving force of looking at services and say, hey, you know what? Here's something that is a need and Let's figure out how to provide this type of service that doesn't, didn't exist. But possibly the outcome could be greater than what the past um, services that exist. So we're in, a, we're in a phase of innovation and looking at growth in a different way. So one other growth question. Um, uh, with the federal government looking at what you do and seeing that it is really you know, top of its class, did you have any plans on expanding beyond the um, the location of your service area into other states or into other counties or anything like that? We have looked at it before, but one of the things that I do know is that there's a lot of work in our communities now. So part of it is the connectiveness that I talked about before, where we want to be reachable to staff. There's something happens. Our model is we have offices in now five different counties. And they're within, you know, hour and a half. Um, we may go a little bit beyond. But then what happens is it, it makes it the connection. We've seen the connection and how I would want that office to embody the culture and um, it, it gets it gets harder. So we're not one of those you know global agencies that can just because we provide widgets. We're not providing widgets. We're providing services, you know. And we know that you know, in order to continue to um, foster and and keep the mission in mind, we've got to have that stronger connection. So proximity becomes a big issue. 
for us. So the long story, uh, short answer now is that probably not. We're going to stay within. So right now we're in Montgomery, Bucks, Chester, Delaware, Lehigh, Northampton. So is there another way that you can spread that positive influence that you're having on the industry to other parts of the country? I'm sure there is. And I'm not thinking that way. Like, I mean, I don't know, is there trade associations or anything like that for the mental health community that you guys are sharing ideas and things like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, our agency is involved on a statewide level, different committees and so on. Um, and, and yeah, and we do reach out certain programs that are from out of state that was brought in. Uh, so, for example, one of the programs really started um, in the state of Washington. So... We did stay connected, but then there's, you know, kind of disconnect. So um, we are one of those agencies that if somebody reaches out and says, hey, help us, you know, with whatever, we're here. We're going to help. Um, and I'll, I'll say that, you know, I said earlier that a lot of my staff or some of my staff actually will say, hey, I want to start my own agency. And I look at it in a way of, I hope you do. And I hope you're successful. I'll help you anywhere I can. I'm not going to fund you, but I'll help you. Um, because what that does is it expands the field and the services with quality. Because, you know, they're just continuous extension. Um, and if they grew out of here and had the desire to do that, my gosh, go for it. I'll support you. You know. Yeah, speaking to that, um, your growth is sounded very natural and great success through your 20 years. What advice would you give to someone who wants to start their own nonprofit and, or maybe they have one that's just not doing well? That's a great question. Um, I think first it starts with, you know, really the, what, what is the purpose? Defining why they, this person would want to start. What is the need? You know, doing some sort of an, uh, an assessment on that. Um, once you have that, once you have an idea and a vision, then comes the, the practice of learning what that would look like. What is the business? What are the parameters of, you know, if it's licensure or um, whatever, whatever things that you need to start. Um, and I think the biggest thing I would say is know the business as best as you can. You're not going to know everything. I didn't know 100% of what I was about to do. I learned. I think it's more of attitude, um, you know, and and the the um, the desire to not give up. It's easy to give up. I've seen that so many times, you know, and you'd be amazed that you just have the attitude of, if there's a barrier, I'm going to hurdle that. There is a way. Find that way is what I would say and encourage because uh, I think there are plenty of good people who have so much to offer that that little startup that says, I'm starting something on my own. Oh, my gosh. And as I said earlier, it's the failure piece that usually stops. Um, a lot of businesses, I mean, we're fortunate. I, I think that we were successful from, you know, the very beginning but I think it's a testament, too, to knowing what the business is. Um, but once you have 
the knowledge, you have to do the business. <laughs> you have to show. Nobody's going to give you anything. So it does take hard work, you know, but the end result is amazing. Uh, can you share any specific examples of some of those like obstacles that you really had to come up with a creative solution to solve? Yeah, I think uh, back then it was um, really the the licensing pieces, um, tackling, you know, the location pieces. Um, I'm trying to think uh, of a good example. Um, hmm. Any like stories that jump out in your mind of like just just really a challenge that you had to overcome? I think really the the biggest hurdle was um, just trying to sell the idea, the mission, the model um, was really difficult because that was taking a stab at something that didn't exist. Meaning that I was I was creating an image, uh, an idea of continuity of services, and um, so you know going back the first question or one of the first ones was about what was the whole process. I had to get the endorsement from the county, so to have the audience, it just to even have the audience. Because they were in the position was we're not starting we're not endorsing any new agencies why should we you know um, so it was hard to get that once I got it then I had to make sure that I was convincing but it wasn't hard because this is what I believed and I think that's the that's the testament is that if you believe in it it's going to come out it's gonna it's gonna show people who are listening that you know this is just not a Oh, I just want to start something. This is something different. Uh, and it's hard to quantify that a little bit. But, um, but you know, it's... Uh, so, I, I mean, there, there's been so many different barriers, but I just uh, don't remember specifically, but I just know that we hurdled, I hurdled it. I had to. Because I did not want anything to stop this. And that is... That was the attitude. So... Um... If anyone wants to get involved with CFF now, how can they help you guys out? Oh, gosh. We need a lot of help. We need great people. Um, we will, you know, there's so many uh, openings. And there's a sadness to, sadness to what I just said about openings. To me, if there's a lot of openings, um, that means we can't serve those needy, you know, the families that who truly need it. So um, come join us. We're a tremendous agency. Uh, you're going to learn a whole lot. You're going to be challenged um, and become part of our family. And we'll leave it right there. Mel, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks thank for you. having me. Stories from the Top is your guide to successful business development. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find Edge of Cinema on YouTube. Stories from the Top is an Edge of Cinema production hosted by Matthew Skura and Jeremy Schmidt. To learn more or get in touch, visit edgeofcinema.com slash podcast. <laughs>